With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Welcome to Sunstein Sessions on iHeartRadio. Conversations about issues that matter. Here's your host, winner of two Gracie Awards, Shelly Sunstein. While most of us are celebrating this time of year and we're getting ready for the new year, this is a very difficult time of year for the woman sitting next to me, Vanessa Rooney, on January 22nd, it will be the two-year anniversary that she lost her FDNY husband at the age of 38, lost to September 11th cancer. He was 38. He only learned he had stage four cancer eight months before he died. Now, before he was an FDNYer, he was an NYPDer. And he served in the 33rd Precinct. He was a first responder on September 11th, and he only became a firefighter in 2004. And I asked Vanessa to join us, and I know how difficult it is for her, but I want him to be known as a person, and I want Vanessa to tell us about Kevin as a person. First of all, welcome, and and I'm so sorry for your loss. How did you two meet? Um... My daughter, who at the time was two years old, she got sick. So I ended up in the hospital, and he was working. Um, his partner got sick. So he was coming out of the elevator, and I was sitting down, and we just looked at each other. That was a Friday. He come in on Sunday, and then on Monday he showed up to my house. Wow, that was good. So, so basically, <laughs> yes. well, first of all, was his partner sick from, from September 11th no. illnesses? or no. It was unrelated. Yeah. All right, but you, it was fate. You met, mm-hmm. and it was love at first sight mm-hmm. for both of you? Yes. yes wow. And how soon after did you get married? Um, a year later. Wow, that mm-hmm. is fast. So tell us about Kevin as a person. Oh, my God. Kevin, he was very funny, laid back, great son, brother, uncle, an amazing husband, an amazing father for my daughter. That's a tall order when you become, you know, when you have a built-in family, an instant family, as you will, mm. right? Yes. And and so how old was your daughter? She was two when I met, when we met. All right. So you told me you were here before and we were hanging out and mm-hmm. you said one of his passions was, was it, was it radio? Was it DJing? Radio, yes. Music. Like heavy metal, rock, he loved music. And his dream was to work in a radio station, especially with Howard Stern. (laughs) She says that to me, who competed with Howard Stern for years. But that's fine. That's fine. So why did he not pursue that? I mean, he was a busy Um, man being first a police officer and then an FDNY. No, it was like a passion. It was nothing like he, he wanted to conquer it, but at the same time, it was not. Like meant to be for him. It was like, you know, I need to get a job and I want to help my community. And you married him in what year? 2001. No, 2002. 
2002. Yes. When did he first start getting symptoms of any illness? Um, that was the issue, that he didn't get no symptoms. Nothing. No sign, nothing. No indigestion, no cough, nothing. 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 He got his physical from work, his annual physical, and that's when the liver enzyme came extremely elevated. And that was a Tuesday. He would call in to go to see the medical. He saw the doctors on Thursday. Then he went to the gastro on Tuesday. He got um, cascan Wednesday, Thursday, colonoscopy, endoscopy, and Monday he was diagnosed with stage four. Stage four, what type of cancer? Um, colon cancer. Wow. And he had no symptoms at all? No. But he was registered with the World Trade Center yes. Health Program, yes. and and the first responders go. Ever anyone who was there for mm -hmm. that day or the eight months after, they go once a year for a checkup, like mm -hmm. it's a full body checkup. And yeah. had he not gone, yeah, he was too young. He was thirty eight, but and no stage family. four and mm -hmm. no cancer at all. No. Now people listening, you you have to understand there are sixty eight cancers that are linked to September 11th toxins and colon cancer is up there but the most pop, well the most common is actually skin cancer followed by breast cancer in women and prostate cancer in men most people would think lung cancer would be the number mm -hmm. one cancer but this is what happens is that people who fall ill from September 11th toxins it, it, it's like cancer on steroids Yes. It's not a normal cancer. No, it's Oftentimes not. when people are diagnosed, they're diagnosed late in the game. So I, that must have been horrible when you heard that. Yes. I was very surprised. And um, and he was in shock. He, did, he was not, like, talking for, like, a day or two. He didn't even want to tell his brother. He was, like, in total shock. Total shock. Did he get treatment? Yes. He started treatment treatment on Monday. So everything was done back to back within a week and a half. So you went from a normal life to, oh yes. my God, he mm -hmm. could die. Yes. But so what happened with the treatment? Did any anything um, look better? It, like his liver was 70% <clears throat> damaged. And um, the tumors were like shrinking. But it, then he metastasized to his lung, and within like three weeks, it went to his brain. So since October... Three weeks mm -hmm. after diagnosis, it went yes. to his brain? Yes. After he metastasized to his lung, it was very aggressive. Very, very aggressive. How did you guys get through this? <laughs> How did you... I mean, I, I can't imagine... Let me ask you, um, Vanessa, before he was diagnosed, because everything happened so quickly for you, um, did Kevin have any PTSD? Because almost all of the families I talked to who were there September 11th or had loved ones who were there, everybody seems to have suffered post-traumatic stress in one way or the other. Um, yes, I think he did, but he kept it for himself. Like He was a very quiet guy. Um, but I think he did. You, but in your day to day, it didn't affect you. No, not really. He was very quiet, and 
sometimes like I started like the conversation because I knew that gonna help him. But um yeah, he talked about you know, nine eleven and um and he was in few fires that were very, very devastating for him. So I always try like to talk to him and we talk about it, but he didn't want like to the stream. Thank God. And it sounds like you would back off where, yes. you know, you would let him talk and then, mm-hmm. his, but not press him. You instinctively mm-hmm. knew that you couldn't press him. Mm-hmm. I'm speaking with Vanessa Rooney, uh, her husband, an FDNYer, Kevin Rooney. Uh, we lost him January 22nd. It'll be two years coming up on this January 22nd. He was 38 years old and uh, he died only eight months after he was diagnosed with stage four cancer. At first, he was a police officer. He was a was he there as an NYPD on two thousand one? Yes, he was there for fourteen days. He was working eighteen hours straight, maybe sometimes twenty. He was there. What did he tell you about that day? Um, Where was he when he first heard? Well. He, that morning, he went home. And I remember I called him because he was doing a midnight shift. And I called him and I'm like, um, put the TV on. And he was like, what is going on? I'm like, no, just put the TV on, turn it on. And when he turned it on, he was like, oh, my God, what is going on? I was like, yeah, like, he, you know, the Twin Towers, a terrorist attack. And he was like, oh, my God, so let me call my prison. And... After that, I barely, like, talked to him and saw him. He was, like, working a lot of hours. And then working on, Society. he worked on the pile, or what was he doing um, down there he was the like days se- after? It was, like, um, kind of, like, security, like, around the area. But um, he could see everything. Like, he could see, you know, everyone trying to help each other and trying to figure it out. I was speaking with um, Father Chris, who is um, uh, well. He he is the the cleric for the FDNY. Um, I mean, there there are several, but he told me when he was on the pile, he said that he saw both heaven and hell at the same time because with the devastation and the recovery. And everything that followed, being on the pile was like being in hell. But looking in the eyes of the first responders mm-hmm. who were there, he was also seeing heaven. And I thought that was so aptly put. He's the FDNY chaplain. That's how you put it. I was for at a loss for words. What else do you want our listeners to know about Kevin? I know it's very hard. I know this is very difficult for you, and I really appreciate you coming in and um, and and sharing parts of your life with us. It. I just don't want people to forget those we've lost, and we've now lost 189 FDN wires on top of the 343 we lost that day, and 2,000 are currently ill, and of course the number will ultimately and 
pretty quickly surpassed the number of FDNYers we lost on that day. And, of course, it's not just the FDNY. It's the NYPD. It's people who live in the area, who worked in the area. Everyone who was told a week later that the air was safe and, and returned Thank God the government ultimately did the right thing and passed the Zadroga bill. And this is where I'm going on my platform and, and, and trying to get everyone who's listening to spread the word. Anyone who was there that day on September 11th or even part of the eight months after below Canal Street, you are covered if you have an illness. Your illness is presumed caused, likely presumed caused by the toxins, which means if you have any symptoms, you get registered with the World Trade Center Health Program, which is in all 50 states. So if you know someone who was here and moved away or someone who retired and later died, of what could have been a September 11th illness. You need to contact them, have them sign up with the World Trade Center Health Program, and if certified with a physical illness, it almost always leads to compensation. But all this could change very soon, February 1st, because the the victim compensation fund, $7 billion was set aside. But so many people, so many more are ill and have died than the government ever thought would happen that they're running out of money. So starting February 1st, the rules may change as to who's covered and how much you can get. So you want to get your claim in before then. Protect yourself and your family. Um, it's, it's an ongoing plague for the FDNY. The people who risk their lives every day running into burning buildings for us are the people that are taking the biggest hit I mean, like the best people on earth are ta- the people that give are taking the biggest hit from September 11th. We cannot forget them. And um, my love to you, Vanessa Rooney, and um, I'm so sorry for your loss. And I thank you for sharing your story. And um, I hope the new year brings you some peace. And I'll be back in a minute with more Q104.3. Sunstein Sessions continues on iHeartRadio. Once again, Shelly Sunstein. Good morning. Uh, With me, John S. Baird is the director of one of my favorite movies of the year. I have to tell you, when I came home to my husband, I said, I just saw a movie that you're you're absolutely going to love. I fell in love with this movie, Stan and Ollie. And yeah, it's about... Laurel and Hardy, but it's not your typical biopic no. because this story picks up in 1953 when Laurel and Hardy were way past their prime, mm. when they yeah. already had their long career, when it, it, it takes a look at fame and the entertainment business when you're on the other side yeah, of I mean, fame, and that's unusual. And oh my God, it's just it's just a love letter to these two. Steve Coogan stars and John C. Riley, mm-hmm. and uh, also Shirley Henderson and Danny Houston, but it's Coogan and Riley yeah. that make this movie. Tell us about it. How, how did you decide to do this, and from this particular perspective? Yeah. Well, first of all, we, you know, we, I was had been a fan of Laurel and Hardy f- since I was a kid. Yeah, um, there's that. My mum's still got a picture of me as an eight-year-old child w- uh, dressed as Stan Laurel, 
uh, at the school fancy dress party. You know, that was way, way long ago. Uh, but I, it's so it's been a sort of love affair with these guys for a long time for me. So when I got the script, um, I, I jumped at the chance of, of doing it. You know, because I didn't know what their what their story was. You know, I just knew their films. I didn't know what their per, anything about the personal life. Um, so that was the first thing that interested me was 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 the fact that I didn't realise they had to go and do stage tours of uh, Europe uh, in the latter part of their career just to make ends meet. You know, just to just to uh, just to make some money because they never they never the studio that they had worked for um, had you know the contract hadn't been too good for them and uh, they didn't didn't have any money in their in the, in the in the latter part of their life. So already there was an interest there for me, you know. Um, but in terms of choosing the the latter part of their life, because they were up against it, you know, they they they, they had ill health, they didn't have any money. They'd been married. Well, Stan was married five times. Ollie was married three times. Uh, Ollie was a bit of a gambler. Stan was a workaholic. They were. They, they, they were. They didn't have an easy retirement at all. They didn't really have a retirement. So I thought, great for an audience to sort of look at that. And um, there's more drama to be found when characters are facing uh, challenges, you know. And and that's where it all stemmed from, really. But to make this work, we had to really believe that we were seeing Laurel and Hardy, which mm. takes tremendous choreography. Mm. I mean, there's one scene in particular where I couldn't believe that they pulled this off. Which one was that? Then? That was the one where they keep missing each other at the train oh, station. Oh, the double door routine, oh, as we call God. it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's like yeah. a who's on first, but visual. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> well, well, that was a that was a sketch that we took weeks and weeks and weeks to perfect. And it looks when you see it, it looks effortless. They're 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 at a train station. They're coming through. They're trying to find each other, but they're coming through two doors and they're just missing each other. And the timing that that takes. To get right, you know, um, we were very lucky. We had a choreographer um, who, who, you know, came up with all these routines with Steve and John, and uh, but we did them in front of a live audience to to really to almost put some more pressure on them, mm. um, and that really helped as well, you know, because they were getting the feedback from the audience right there. Um, but yeah, all the all, you know, you this this film. I always said this film was going to live or die within the first five seconds of people seeing Stephen John as Laurel and Hardy. And if it didn't work, if they didn't buy it in the first five seconds, we were done. So um, so we put a lot of resources into the prosthetic, uh, into rehearsals, uh, to, you know, to make it feel authentic, you know. We had a great prosthetics designer, Mark Coolier, who, who'd won two Academy Awards previously. Um, so we wanted to get the best we could, you know. Um, and the results hopefully are there, you know. Did John C. Riley actually have to gain weight? I asked him to. <laughs> yeah, and he, he wasn't too keen, yeah. So Well, we, it's so hard to lose yeah. it once you well, gain it. Well, the thing is, Oliver Hardy was 325 pounds, yeah. Ah. Um in his in his uh when he was in his fifties, yeah. Um so that was a big ask for you know for John to do. So w what we did is we 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 built a fat suit. Um and it went through a lot of variations to get there for it. Um, um, and John came up with this idea that it should look like a fat baby. 
Um, so we sort of designed it of 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 this chubby babe because because Laurel uh, sorry uh, Oliver Hardy's nickname was Babe. They called him Babe because he looked like a fat baby all his life. So we sort of designed it around that, and we we got the suit. Uh, eventually, got the suit perfected, but it was still so it was made of foam. So it was still it looked fat, but it was still quite light. So John put the weight inside it to weigh him down, so he would walk like a oh. he would look and and walk like a three hundred and twenty five pound man, you know. How long did he have to be in makeup every day? He was in the chair for, it started off three and a half hours every oh. day. Yeah, it was quite painful. Oh. Um, and they got it down to about two and a half, you know, once they got into the swing of things. Yeah. Now, people listening might think, oh, so, you know, he's sitting there doing nothing. But remember, once he's out of that chair, he's got to get to work. Yeah, exactly. I mean, imagine imagine if your work involved every day, a, a three-hour preparation for it, you know, before you even get... You know, before you even get to work, uh, so it can be, you know, and and being an actor, it it's it preys on your nerves anyway. You know, it's a nervous thing because you're putting yourself in front of everybody uh, to be judged. Um, so you imagine having three and a half hours every day to think about that before you go on camera. You know, so um, it was difficult for for John. I have to say, very difficult for him. But he he always says that. Um, he did it for Oliver Hardy. Whenever he was getting frustrated and whenever he was, you know, getting a little bit annoyed that it was taking too long, he would sort of try and calm himself down by saying, this is for Oliver, you know, hmm. which I thought was really nice. I'm speaking with John S. Baird. He is the director of Stan and Ollie, starring Steve Coogan and John C. Riley. I heard that Steve Coogan was your first and only choice. Steve was John was as well actually they both oh. were yeah they both were um, we're very lucky to you know we, we, at the beginning you always make a list a casting list and and uh, you you hope you get your first choices um, and I met Steve and I met John within weeks of each other um, it took some convincing they didn't just say yes straight away um, they wanted to do it but they wanted to know how I wanted to do it first before they said yes because they were playing their heroes. And and with that, there's a big responsibility um, to fans of Laurel and Hardy, and to you know to the legacy of those two comic geniuses, you know. So, so yeah, so so we took a while to persuade them. You say that you were watching Laurel and Hardy as a kid. Is yeah. that why you got into the acting business? Was that was was it them who who actually inspired you? I suppose, I suppose they inspired my love of comedy. Mm. Um, what. What what really made me want to get involved with this is musical theatre. I grew up in a family that um, my dad was a construction worker, my mum was a nurse, and we grew up in a small sort of town in, in, in a remote town in Scotland. And neither of them were sort of educated or had been, you know, had were that interested in in the arts, you know. Uh, but a very sort of loving upbringing, and in but but my dad was obsessed with musical theatre. So once a year we'd go down to London and we would go and see. Whatever the you know whatever the big show was, so from a very early age, I'd seen Cats and I'd seen Les Misérables and I'd seen um, you know Me and My Girl and all these incredible um, you know musicals. But the one that really got me into it was Oliver, um, and I saw Oliver at the same t you know I, I would have probably been the same age as Oliver when I saw that, and I remember coming out of it thinking that's what I want to do for the rest of my life. I want to. I didn't know what a director was, you know. I didn't know. I didn't know anything about it, but I knew I wanted to give people the feeling that I had when I walked out of that theatre. One of the things I loved about Stan and Ollie 
was that it shows the real stresses, unbeknownst to the audience, of a long partnership. Mm. You Yes, they were best friends, but they had big differences and actually split for a time. Mm-hmm. And so all of that, I assume, is true to that that that's that was the truth well yeah yeah um <clears throat> what happened was cuz cuz Hal Roach uh, who um the, the studio that, that they worked for he was very smart and he started their contracts 6 months apart so it meant that they didn't have any negotiating power um and Stan's contract ran out before Ollie's and uh, you know Roach still had had Ollie and, and basically made him do a film with another partner uh, and this was something that that came up in 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 later life, you know. Uh, you obviously take artistic license because you don't know what they would have said about it. But by speaking to a lot of the Laurel and Hardy fans, and also to Cassidy Cook, who is Stan's great granddaughter, um, you know, we 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 pieced this together and imagined what the you know what the what the the conflict would have been at this particular point in time. But they were very different individuals. Stan was a workaholic. Ollie just wanted to do a nine-to-five job. He wanted to leave the studio straight after he'd finished, go and play golf, go to the racetrack, do just normal stuff, and Stan would sit there for hours and hours. He would sleep in the edit room, you know. So they were very different. Um, and um, But you'll see that in a film. You know, you see what the central conflict is in a film, and it's and it's about the fact that Ollie had done another film with someone else. And it's funny with a partnership like that. I mean, yes, you could work with someone else, but there's a magic that happens sometimes that only happens when you're working with the right person. Mm. And yeah. it's it, you can't even explain it. No, absolutely. And and the thing about it was they never they they were kind of plucked from obscurity. Uh, they didn't go to Hal Roach, you know, with an act and said, look, look, look we're. Roach picked them, you know, they were they were actors who were doing very different things. And he said, how about the fat guy and the thin guy and we'll put you together, be funny. Yeah. So, so wow. that's, yeah. But, so you wonder what did Hal Roach see in the two of them? I, I, I think it was, a, it was either a stroke of genius or a stroke of luck, you know, maybe a mixture <sighs> of both. Um, but I think, you know, Stan really was, you know, Stan was the genius. Oliver was actually an incredible actor, you know, a, 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 a serious actor. And Stan was a comic genius, but they put a lot of their own personalities into... So they put a lot of who Stan and Ollie were into who Laurel and Hardy were. And I think they just exaggerated a lot of their mannerisms. And, and Stan would look at Ollie and, and, and look at some of the things he would do in, in real life and, and exaggerate these into, um, you know, scripts and storylines, you know. So, but they, they obviously had chemistry. Um, and their DNA runs right through comedy now. You know, there's so many comedians now who, who reference Laurel and Hardy as their as their heroes and, and and as people who inspire them. You know, whether it's Jerry Lewis or whether it's Steve Martin or Peter Sellers or Steve Coogan and John Reilly. You know, that that everybody who's working in physical comedy uses Laurel and Hardy as a reference. So would you say they were the first with the, some of the first with physical comedy, that type of physical comedy? You know, around about time, you obviously had Charlie Chaplin, you had Harold right. Lloyd, you had um, Buster Keaton. Uh, but they were they were slightly different. I mean, the, the, you know, it's particularly Chaplin and Keaton were incredible technicians. Their, their comedy was, their, their physical comedy was, was, was perfect in terms of, 
you know, their movement and their stunts and everything. What Laurel and Hardy had though was a, was a kind of almost like a humanity. Uh, they had a childlike quality that sort of transcended generations and classes and 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 borders as well. So they had something slightly special, and they were a double act as well, obviously. So what I thought was a really interesting thing was at Stan's funeral, Buster Keaton stood up and did a speech, and he said, um, "You know, people thought that myself and 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 Chaplin were the geniuses." But Stan was the real genius. So Keaton actually admitted that that Stan was the genius. You know, mm. what are your hopes for the film? Um, I hope, I hope you know people who who remember Laurel and Hardy who go to see it um, are happy with it and convinced, and it remind it it convinced that the guys have sort of pulled it off. Um, that's obviously on one level, but I hope it works across. You know. Um, I work at. I hope it works for a younger audience who weren't aware of Laurel and Hardy, because what we set out to do is we we set out to make a love story about these two men who just happened to be Laurel and Hardy. I think if we'd done it the other way around, you would have alienated a lot of people. But we wanted to make the central core of the narrative this love story that was accessible across, you know, across generations. Yeah. Um. So I hope it works on, 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 on different levels. And I hope the people who do know Laurel and Hardy pick up the, some of the references we've used to their films as well. But you don't actually have to be a Laurel and Hardy fan to enjoy Stan and Ollie. I think that's the... That's absolutely yeah. true. Stan and Ollie, it's actually one of the best movies of the year. You're just going to love it. If you missed any part of this interview or you want to catch up with some of my previous interviews, just download the iHeartRadio app and check out my podcast, Sunstein Sessions. And I will not see you tomorrow morning on the Jim Kerr Rock and Roll Morning Show because I'm still on vacation, although I'm on the air now. Go make sense of that. (laughs) Happy New Year! With Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandsLots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.